Welcome back to the Queer Chaos, where we are embracing queer innovation, creativity, weirdness, failure, and all the delicious wildness happening in and around the margins. Chaos because we're pushing against the heteronormative, and queer, well, because we are and we can. I'm your host and Alanis Morissette fan, John Malitris. Speaking of which, I went to the Jagged Little Pill 25th anniversary concert last evening with Cat Power and Garbage and Ma'am. Ma'am. I was swimming in the confused curiosity of late-night dorm parties, Zima, and the anticipatory condensation of second-half 90s life. Oh, the voice. Alanis is a singer. A singer. Alanis was and is doing it her own damn way. This is feminism. On today's show, we're chatting queer farming with Alessandro Dobreco of Queer Farm Ecologies and Anhil of Queering the Farm. Before we chat queering farming, we'll ride our broom over to Justy Childers to hear what's happening on the state of culture in our segment, Active Cultures. One last thing before we dive into the deep end. As I always say before we start the show, let me know you love Queer Chaos with a follow on Instagram at Queer Chaos Pod. Share the show on your socials. And what really gets me turned on is a review on Apple Podcasts. Oh, and a follow of our show wherever you get your pods. It's coaches. Hi, everyone. I'm Dusty Childers, a.k.a. at Duddy Lynn, and this is Active Cultures, where we talk about, you know, culture. Um, A thing that I really want to talk about is um, a dear friend of mine who I've thought to be a genius for a very long time. Uh, Her name is Macy Rodman. She just released a new album uh, it's called Unbelievable Animals, and it is an unbelievable piece of recording. It's so gorgeous. I recently went to a um, a track release party. She had had a track out earlier this summer called Love Me, which is sort of the lead track off of Unbelievable Animals. And I'm sitting there in the audience and everyone is just like, you it, You can just feel everyone's collective heartbeat pulsing because it's just like, oh my God, first of all, we haven't, we haven't been in this kind of a situation in a long time. So the timing was perfect. And then the music just sort of got us, you know, it, it was really just a, such a beautiful collective feeling. And I look over at my friend and I'm like, this is her this album is just, I mean, I've liked her music, really loved her music for a very long time, but I was like, this is her, like her opus. This is such an important piece. And then on stage, she turns and says, Ooh, ah, that was an alarm. Um, (laughs) so I wouldn't be late for this. She turns and says to the audience, she goes, yeah, someone, one of my friends referred to this as me being in my ray of light phase. And I was like, Oh my God. Macy Rodman is is in her ray of light phase. And if you know, of course, if you don't know, you should. 
Madonna went from point A, which was gorgeous, to point B, C, D, and then there was this ray of light phase, right? So that she did a lot of different things, and then she got into this, like, I don't know, meditative music, this sort of, like, higher calling kind of thing that was happening, and it was, you know... I don't know. It didn't last very long for Madonna. And who knows if a ray of light face can even last long for anyone. But Macy Rodman is in hers now. And I have to tell you, it is just so fucking perfect. It's getting the best reviews. Mine included here on Active Cultures. Um, I have to say there are so many good tracks, but uh, there's one called Film and it's about going to the movies with this person that the album is about. The album is a breakup album, but it's not a depressing breakup album. It's sort of, uh, it's like, uh, my Saturn has returned and I am a stronger person and I now know more about what I need and what my desires are kind of breakup album, as opposed to like, I'm going to slice your tires, you know? Um, <laughs> which you know, it's also a way to get through a breakup. It's, I don't recommend it. You know, um, what is that called? That is called punitive measures. That is called, you might end up in jail. Don't do it. Um, so, but, so the, the song film is a breakthrough for me. There's a song called Joshua. I'm not one of those people that's like, I've actually never given a, um, a talk about an album. I mean, maybe like a Reba McIntyre album, but like, I'm not like, you know, like it's hard, it's hard for me because it's like, well, like speaking about music is, you know, they say, what is it like? Um, uh, dancing about, it's like dancing about architecture or whatever. You know, it's like there, it doesn't really like you listen to music. Right. And I get, you can talk about it, but for me, it feels a little weird. But I'm just saying it's all about Macy Rodman. It's an incredible, beautiful experience. Go drop what you're doing. Well, don't drop what you're doing. Listen to this podcast episode. And then while you're on your streaming platform and you're done with this podcast, then give Unbelievable Animals a shot. Um, it's so intelligent. It's uh, There's a um, an album... Uh, there is a song called Punk Rock Boyfriend with Shamir, which is the young, beautiful Shamir did this song a couple years ago called On the Regular. Uh, it's like, this is me on the regular, so you know. It's like this gorgeous pop song years ago. Uh, Shamir lives in Philly, and Shamir and Macy Rodman are friends, and so they cut this track. It's so fucking hot. It's beautiful. The voice. Ugh, the voice. And actually, Macy and Shamir did this um, sort of little homespun recording of the song Red by Taylor Swift, which, um, you know, it's it's a fine song. Like, Taylor Swift, you know, she is what she is. Um, I have a reluctant relationship with Taylor Swift. Uh, I now am no longer a, a non-fan. So I will say that I'm a non... I'm, I am a fan of Taylor Swift at this point. But anyway, right... They do. You need to look up Shamir and Macy Rodman singing Red. It's perfect. It's so gorgeous. We need music. We need this late summer music. Summer's not over. It's, it's, still, it's still around in your hearts and minds. Even if you're listening to this in the winter, it's still summer, honey. Okay? So get some music in your body. And uh, yeah. 
unbelievable animals, honey. Get into it. Thank you, Dusty. And now on to the rest of the episode. My name is Alessandra Del Bracco. Um, I'm a fourth year PhD student at the University of Kentucky, but I also um, run the Queer Pharmacology's Instagram, which is how I got to meet um, vaguely and on the internet digitally, both of you. Um, And my interest in my PhD program is to uh, figure out alternatives to, um, you know, the commercial industrial food system as it currently exists. And I think a lot of that knowledge is found in um, alternative queer ways of farming and queer farmers and all of that 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 entails. And my name is Angel. Uh, That's actually my last name. Uh, And I grew up in Montana. I've traveled around a lot and I've been in New Mexico off and on for about 20 years. Um, And I live on Tiwa land right now in Albuquerque. Thank you both. Just to get started, what is your connection to agriculture and farming? Um, Sure. So my connection to ag and farming um, started in um, kind of around 2011 and 12 when I was um, in college, kind of like away from home for the first time in Western Massachusetts, where there are a lot of visibly queer people who grow food. Um, And then that kind of expanded also in Vermont, where it's kind of the same story. Lots of really visibly queer folks um, growing food. And I spent, you know, a summer here and there working on small but also heterosexual family farms of different iterations um, and realized over time that this was something um, that I wanted to have lots and lots of conversations about and really help kind of support. Um, And so I went back to school um, four years after graduating from college um, to kind of look further into this. And I found lots of like minded people both in and out of um, and also, of course, in farms around the country, which is really interesting and exciting. I was looking at Instagram and I saw that you were um, just beginning or maybe just just putting the call out there for a study uh, regarding LGBTQ plus identified individuals in farming, right? Yeah, I'm really, um, yeah, super excited about this because it's, you know, you do all the groundwork and now I finally get to do the work I want to do. And what that the first iteration of that will be is, um, how did we all find each other on Instagram? Like literally in this conversation, we've all found each other in our common interest through Instagram. Um, and so I'm kind of looking at how queer folks are using social media to build these networks of information and knowledge, particularly about ecology, agriculture, farming, um, sustainable ways of living. How about you, Angel? Um, it started how I grew up in Montana. I grew up in a small farming rural farming community in eastern Montana. And so it was around me and my my grandparents, I mixed race and my grandparents from Mexico, they were migrant workers. And so they worked the land and then my white grandparents owned the land. And so I had two different 
race and class perspectives around farming and land ownership. And, you know, when I was growing up, though, my grandparents at their age, they were they had a small garden. And so they were always gardening, uh, making chile. Um, You know, we had fresh veggies. And then it wasn't until 2008, I think I was living in Seattle, Washington, and I was surrounded by a a bunch of folks who were doing um, community gardens or an intentional living and um, and there's lots of gardening in Seattle um, and then a lot of people were woofing uh, and so I heard about that and so in 2008 that's when I started my about 10-year journey of doing uh, volunteering internships with natural building farming gardening um, and doing landscape work too and then when I was living in the Bay and even in Seattle I was meeting a lot of herbalists and by the time I got to the Bay, I was meeting a lot of queer, that intersection of people who are queer and doing land work or, or plant stewardship. Um, and then lots of people were also, they had been talking for years about um, land ownership and building communities. And that had, that had been around already since this, probably the 70s, 60s and 70s. So just building on that. Um, with the newer generations, uh, younger generations. And yeah, right now, so when I moved to Albuquerque, um, just, it's been about three years now, I, that's when I started querying the farm. And I do not really do social media. And so I haven't, I don't have a, a personal Instagram account, but I've, so just this past year, some of the collective members started it for querying the farm. And I've really just been more active on it the last maybe six months, but I can see as well, there's a large community. And so I'm trying to, you know, we follow each other, different farmers in the U.S. and around the world, queers and all that. It's super cool. Mm -hmm. What does queering the farm mean for you? I mean, it started with me just as a queer person, um, working on the land but what I did was I don't I did not own the land uh, as far as ownership a, a white woman owned the land and I was living and working on the land but I presented an opportunity like this um to the landowner and she was fine with it uh this opportunity for the community there to have just to have access to land and because once that happens mm-hmm. all sorts of things open up um, you know, labor, you can, you can already be doing work, um, or just being in relationship with the land. And that can mean something different to everyone. People were, um, talking, people were gathering during COVID outside and which was a huge deal. Um, Mm. and so the act of doing all of that was queer to me. And the fact that we were all queer, right. Is, was also part of queering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love when I was I was um, digging through the links that were attached to the queering the farm Instagram account, and I was thinking to myself. So I was reading about the dance parties. I was reading about about the um, connection to community itself, 
and then and then what you were doing during COVID. And I love the idea that you were gathering in person when a lot of my friends were were throwing parties, dance parties, but they were going deeper into the matrix. They were like on Twitch and Zoom. And I feel like they were forcing people to go more, more into the machinery of technology. But but it seems as if querying the farm was pushing against that and bringing people back out in into the outdoors and out into nature. Yeah, and it's funny because I, I think I know that seed had already been planted, but it was the right time. And just me listening to that vision, listening to everything around me and just allowing that to happen. It, it just all fell into place at the right time. I was wondering if you could respond um, a little bit to like resources, accessibility, sustainability, like say, okay, take me for instance. So I, I'm a white bodied urban dwelling queer person um, living in Colorado. So living on Cheyenne, Arapahoe, Utah land um, and I'm interested in getting into farming from that, from those, from those identities. But, but I'm concerned that um, by my getting into farming, that it might um, continue to sort of perpetuate this dominant cultural narrative of colonization, domination, domestication, what have you. Like, how do you... Um, what would you say to that? That's the first step right there, right? Is is that whole intellectual process of thinking about it, talking about it, processing it in with yourself and with others, you know, and then you start taking those next steps. And I think that looks different, you know, depending on what your activism is um, and who you are. Um but for me, you know, that would look like a couple of things, you know. One is being re- in relationship with the people whose land you're on. That can look like a do- lot of different things, um, including asking for permission to be there. And this, the second, I think, is being in relationship with the land and, and really having it. I would love if the both of you could introduce yourselves to everyone listening. And to take from the land, you know, um, and that's a process too. And then how that, how that intertwines with your community, your family. I mean, I totally agree. And I think that's part of a holistic approach to any kind of food production moving forward, right? Is recognizing that it's all part of, the same system and that system um, needs to be historically contextualized (laughs) um, and everything that that means. Um, I just, um, and as comments were making me think about these interviews I'm having with farmers in Kentucky for a different um, thing and how eloquently some of them are speaking on awareness of what it means that they have come to. So I think a lot of times we're talking about new farmers or second generation farming, but these folks are talking about what it means to be reckoning with being white farmers who claim to be sixth, seventh and eighth generation farmers and how that directly links them to a violent colonialist history 
um, as white folks in Kentucky on stolen land. And I just think the fact that these farmers are starting to have these conversations kind of, of course, not on their own, they're listening to their communities, as we were just saying, but says we didn't have to even ask them about it. They brought it up themselves, which is such a good sign, I think, for the future of these conversations um, overall. Mm -hmm. I wanted to add one thing too, you know, because there's, there's so, there's so many ways to respond to this Um, as white people, as non-indigenous people. um, And one is this, it's not new, but I do see it on Instagram a lot, which is land back, right? Um, In Canada, in the U.S., and probably around the world. And so, you know, that's something to really think about. You know, what does that mean um, to just give the land back? And even, Mm -hmm. you know, even just like offering that, you don't even know what's going to happen after that, but like, you know, no questions, no, no negotiating, you know, it's just, it's just that simple. Mm-hmm. Now I'm a little, I, I'll fully admit that I'm ignorant <laughs> in terms of um, sometimes like the process of farming, like in terms of like from, from the soil itself to like where it goes afterwards, whether it goes to a market or where it goes afterwards. So I wanted to ask, um, is, is queering the farm growing, uh, for itself to support its, its own community? Or, um, is there a, a chain where you are, um, providing food for others as well? Definitely others. Um, at this point, when it started, it was, it, it was the same. It was for community. It was for people who came, you know, and worked and it, it was given back. Um, and now with the separate, uh, farms or land stewardship projects, it's, there's in some way there is relationship with community. Alessandra, I was wondering if you'd tell me a little bit more about these conversations you're having. Um, so is it, it's through, I don't know if you don't mind me mentioning that your, your, um, your university is in Kentucky, right? Yes. So are you having conversations with people, um, with farmers and, and folks that are based in Kentucky or, but, or outside of there as well? Um, so j- to protect the, like, Right. All of our research participants are gotcha. anonymous. I will say that they're in the Southeast. I think that's to- that's in the, you know, um, study. That's totally fine. Um, I can even go so far as to certainly say Appalachian. And the study is conducted through the University of Kentucky, which is where I am. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think before I said that some of these farmers are in, in Kentucky itself, which is totally, again, totally fine. There are many farmers in Kentucky. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And what is the landscape like of um, queer identified farmers? Is it huge? Like, is it, is it like really big? Like, I'm just so curious about this because I'll be honest with you. I, like I said, I knew, um, I knew about, well, for the sake of protecting their anonymity, I'm just going to call them, I've called it fairyland in Tennessee. So I knew about my friends in fairyland in Tennessee. Um, 
And then when I've poked around, obviously, I found you on Instagram, but I didn't really know about um, communities of queer identified, queer and trans identified farmers. So I'm wondering, like, is it big? (laughs) There are a lot of folks, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's so funny, right? They're kind of like slowly growing awareness of what I think all of at least the three of us here might totally agree is a pretty longstanding tradition of rural and somewhat agrarian minded queers, right? This is not a new phenomenon. There has been, you know, back to the land lesbian movements. There has been the fairy radical fairy movements. Um, the radical fairy digest or RFD zine is still very much in existence today. Um, great yes. yes. Yeah. Like, just wonderful <laughs> to check out. Right. Um, so this is not a new thing. I think it's just gaining traction. And we see that through, um, you know, Rush Limbaugh being like the mm-hmm. lesbian farmers are coming or whatever stupid thing he said. So the shorter answer to your question is the queer farmers are out there. They're just not tracked or counted or really even engaged with in mm. almost any way. So there's no, you know, the U.S. Um, Department of Agriculture conducts a census of all farmers and farms and there is nothing that you can even begin to guess sexuality with right um and on one hand of course we don't want to out anyone who doesn't want to be outed but on the other i have not had a hard time finding queer people in agriculture they're very much visible out proud doing their Mm thing um and and I, yeah, they have really, we all have just fascinating and um, really diverse perspectives. Mm-hmm. If if I was compelled to get involved in um, in agriculture, in farming as a queer person, like, where would I go? Like, where would you suggest I look? Well, one easy way I've gotten into farming is... Um, well, you know, so many farms need work during the farm season. And I have found Mm -hmm. throughout the years, uh, websites, you know, free websites where you can search for farms, uh, in the U S, um, kind of like Woof, but it's for free. And then you can see what they're looking for. Some pay, some don't. Um, and you know, you just kind of start your journey there and you'll find out, what works for you, what doesn't work, or you'll, you'll learn a lot of things. And then every region is different, how people farm. Every farmer's different. And then every region, you're going to work with different plants, different soil, different climate. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And Alessandra, are you, um, I, I think I read that you maybe catalog resources or maybe share resources. Yeah, absolutely. So exactly like I know say, you know, we on the um, queer pharmacology's Instagram, if I see work pop up, I do try to sh- share it no matter where in the country it is. However, um, to this exact, you know, I think it's great that queering the farm has exactly the farm days to kind of get people out and not be worried that you'll be the only queer person there or anything like that. Um, in addition to that, I think, you know, as I move towards a larger project, I've been thinking about how can I contribute, um, you know, use (laughs) any resources I come by, um, to give back to the community, to engage with the community. And the answer to that seems to be to maybe create this resource we're starting to talk about, which is if queer farmers want to list their CSAs on one website, creating kind of a registry state by state for folks to look. 
and now maybe, you know, thinking create a, a work, you know, if folks want to list their seasonal jobs, um, just creating kind of one website that is specifically for queer folks who want to do that. Because I think that really can be one less barrier for people thinking about, because oftentimes it means you're going to stay in a place for at least a few months, right? <laughs> and it might not mm-hmm. be where, you, where you're currently living, where you currently have community. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important because I'm, I have been interested in that creating a map in a way, like actually an old school map. I know now with social media, you have Instagram, <laughs> but not only uh-huh. farmers to connect, but um, for cutie BIPOC farmers as well. And there are so many cutie BIPOC farmers. So would you be talking about um, a map, uh, like a physical map or, or using some type of technology to create a map? Uh, or just mapping as as a process of of mapping cutie BIPOC farmers in the U.S. I'd say all of it, um, you know, because I I've met some people here that were interested in that too, and you know, my brain goes to physical map, but Alessandra, what you were saying, like it seems more digital, and then even like the history and mapping that right, and for, because that is so important in our community, our queer history for all sorts of things, and. I'm so inspired by these documentaries that are coming out and they're just piecing all for all sorts of doc, queer documentaries, piecing together the past and the present and future. And um, I think queer farming deserves that. Mm-hmm. Totally. Cause you see so many of, of the projects circulating around mapping um, gay or lesbian bars or more urban spaces, which is so important. Do not get me wrong, but there's almost, a complete void for rural space, like three books come, right? Like almost nothing comes to mind. There's like John Howard's queer Southern history and that, and that's almost mm-hmm. it, right? <laughs> nothing. And, and very, and when you're talking about, um, QT BIPOC, rural queer folks, even, even, even less right now, but I think that's changing. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. And I'm wondering if that's just not the way that, um, we tend to archive things differently from rural to more urban communities um, where, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe rural communities are a little bit more oral tradition, you know, stories getting passed down through families and people that are working together or connected in some way. Um, whereas in, in more urban regions, maybe there's a little bit more documentation involved. I would love, I would love to like dig into um, like an archive, a historical archive of queer rural communities. That would be fascinating. Absolutely. I love that idea. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So what's coming up next for the both of you? Um, Well, I kind of already alluded a little bit, so I'll just um, Mm. tie a bow on that in that Right. I'm super excited to talk to a few people this summer, kind of first iteration about this digital networking that we all seem to be doing. Um, And then and then really expand on that. Right. Like much larger um, kind of connections and looking more into um, a broader cross section of queer farming and queer agriculture. And I love that. And Hill's account is called Queering the Farm because there is a difference between just queer farmers and queering the farm. And I think I'm excited to kind of play with that idea. As far as queering the farm as a collective, I have no idea. 
um, because <laughs> it's been a very interesting process for me because, you know, it started out as my vision on a certain piece of land and that shifted because I had to leave the farm. And then now we're supporting multiple farm stewards. And and then we have, you know, we get together. But it's been a process of, you know, as far as organizing something, um, it there's a lot of tenderness. There's a it's like queer tenderness and queer kindness. It's mm-hmm. very very intentional, very slow. And it's, you know, sometimes we're all doing something and sometimes there's a lot of space and nothing. Um, We have a lot of vision. I will say that we're all very interested in education um, and working with children. Um, You know, I think also healing, um, whether we are practitioners or not, um, and mm-hmm. integrating that and maybe moving forward with that somehow. And I have big visions too. And, uh, you know, I'd love to have some sort of teaching, um, or if we had a school or a healing day or, you know, things like that. Um, you know, but right, you know, once farm season gets going sometimes though, especially with the farmers, um, uh, that's really all that can be focused on. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I imagine it's a Herculean task. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Would you tell everyone where they can connect with you, where they can find you on social media or any um, web links? Queering the Farm is on Instagram at Queering the Farm. Great. <laughs> yeah. And uh, really similarly, Queer Pharmacologies. Also exclusively on Instagram right now, and it's just queer pharmacologies. I want to thank you both so much for for coming on and having a chat with me. This is really wonderful, and I can't wait to see what you're up to and check out your Instagram more and keep in touch. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a total pleasure. It was great to talk with both of you. Are you an LGBTQ plus identified individual that has a humorous story of failure? Attempted a pandemic hobby that didn't go as planned. A witch whose spell brought unexpected results. Tried cooking a new dish for a dinner party that veered horribly off course. Queer Chaos Podcast wants to hear from you. At this show, we rally around the queer art of failure and experiments that didn't quite make it. Email your funny trips down the tried it lane to queerchaospodcast at gmail.com and your story might land right here on our little show. Please include a first name you'd like to be known by and the city town you're located in. We won't share any other information. We ain't trying to dox a bitch. And please, make it a story and not just the result. Like, my cat puked on my date. Queer Chaos is hosted and co-produced by me, John Malitris, and recorded at House of Pod in Denver, Colorado. Our podcast cover art was created by Evan Lorenzen, who you can find on the Instagrams at Art and Such Evan. That's A-R-T-A-N-D-S-U-C-H-E-V-A-N. Evan is also an amazing tattoo artist based in Denver, so check them out. You can find Queer Chaos on Instagram at Queer Chaos Podcast and online at QueerChaosPodcast.com. 
If you have some coins you can throw our way, we are on the Patreon, which is linked through our website, CritCastPodcast.com. Those coins go to monthly studio fees, website, and admin upkeep. And don't forget to send us your stories to QueerCastPodcast at gmail.com. Until next show, embrace the queer chaos. <laughs>